Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Previously, Edward Mason and I discussed mental focus, how it can aid you in establishing a magical space to work in, and how it's one of the most fundamental skills to develop in magic. Today is a continuation of that discussion, in which we explore the faculty of visualization more specifically. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Just had to pause for our sponsors there. I'm just kidding. We don't have any sponsors. Okay. We have invisible sponsors. Yes. And inaudible sponsors. Okay. Um, yeah. I think if you're looking at visualization overall, it's always been, so far as we have records, the most critical skill in any esoteric practice. I'm thinking in my mind right now of Egypt, which was a very visual society. Sculpture and painting has come down to us in masses of stuff. When I visited the place, and that's 50 years ago, I was really struck how much there was there because I'd seen all the famous temple photos and stuff and thought, okay, that's all you find. And then I realized there was stuff everywhere, Um, very, very oriented around visualization. Esoteric Buddhism is very heavily visually oriented. If you're doing the Tibetan stuff, then you are visualizing bodhisattvas, or in some exercises, you are visualizing hundreds of them all around you in the heavens, and then you merge it all into white light or, or something of that nature the amount of training you would need to be able to do that boggles my mind because I could never even begin to do that. It's one reason why I've got quite a few friends who've done Tibetan Buddhism and they say, you should try this. And I think I couldn't do it. Hmm. (laughs) In magic, you just, you know, call up one particular being, one particular angel. That's all you you need. You you have to get the, the, the thing set up, but you don't have to hold the images of, you know, let's say you're doing a hexagram invocation. You don't have to hold that image of the hexagrams around you once you've got into the invocation. You're just focusing on the object of the, the exercise. Um, obviously, the Tibetan stuff is trying to get you to a particular state of realization. It's not necessarily anything to do with um, conversation or the, the transfer of knowledge which is a key thing in magic. Um, But always with the big paths, there's heavy visualization involved. You have to be able to work on visualization skills if you don't have them naturally. And you have to keep working on those visualization skills 
in order to to keep them up to scratch. It also brings to mind the uh, the cabalistic tree of life as it's used in Golden Dawn style groups and uh, um, through Crowley's teaching, especially put a lot of emphasis on it as a tool for memory and developing the memory. Yeah, memory was a big thing in the Renaissance. People like Giordano Bruno, uh, Cornelius Agrippa, and others, they were trying to come up with systems that would enable you to have a set of images that would essentially encompass all conceivable knowledge. The tarot, at least as it's been developed for us in modern times, is another example of a set of, I'm thinking of just the trumps here, 22 images that imply all basically attainable states for a human consciousness. And the Golden Dawn, in taking over what had come down and what had leaked out from traditional Jewish lines, went a long way towards improving the visual density of the thing. The, in 777, Sefer Sephiroth, there's, Crowley refers to some person called Jelinek. He says Dr. Jelinek, but I don't think the guy was ever uh, academically qualified, who gives some colors for his tree of life. They're white, red, and pink. I did the Jelinek tree of life one time, just out of curiosity, thinking, has anyone ever done this? And I looked at it and thought, yeah. <laughs> now, that tends to be the same I mean, a lot of the um, pop Kabbalah that was coming out 15, 20 years ago seemed to be mostly what they were letting out to the public, black and white. Whereas the Golden Dawn started with this whole spectrum of the rainbow and then all of these gradations of color through the four worlds. So that, but you start off with a pure limpid pastel um, for the Atzeluth level of a sephira, the god level. Then what you normally see with the, the sephiroth is the briatic level, the, the world of creation, where you get the primary colors, red, blue, yellow, and then you get the green of Netzach and the purple of Yesod and so on. By the time you get down to Asiya, the realm of manifestation, you've got black, red, yellow, green with blue and red, dots, complex workings of color. So very much hermetic magic as it culminated in the late 1800s, we don't know a lot of what was happening previously, um, was very much involved with color and imagery as a way of enhancing the tools that were available you know, if you you get to the point, if you've memorized your tree of life, that blue automatically signals the idea of Chesed and Jupiter, green, Venus and Netzach, and so on, uh, orange for the sun. Therefore, you've already got these prompts to consciousness. You don't have to hold the image of blueness or red. I suppose if you set out to do it, that anti-will I was talking about a few moments ago, might cut in and muddle things and try and turn it purple. But usually we can hold a color field for ourselves without a lot of difficulty. It's when you get into more evolved imagery that you need to uh, 
to practice a bit more. Yeah, it does seem to be the way that the mind works. Uh, I mean, going back to the music thing, that's uh, building associations uh, and imaginative associations is a great way to uh, build things into the memory. I think there's a tendency to, at the outset, rationalize things and try to work it out almost mathematically. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of a lot of this concentration work seems to be engaging the other aspects of the mind that we tend not to think about because they're not as tangible and immediate. Um, uh, and so, I mean, like for instance, a scent. Uh, you know, the easiest thing in the world is thinking of strawberries because if you think about strawberries, the scent of strawberries can easily take you back to. Uh, late summer uh, being in a strawberry patch and that sort of thing. That's something that can bring you right there. Or fresh cut grass when you've been spending all winter in uh, Canada <laughs> within, without any smells at all. And then suddenly you've got uh, fresh greenness growing and it's a very, it's a, it, it's a very uh, visceral feeling. And it brings, it's like your mind shoots back to this different part of your brain altogether where it's got all these filing cabinets handy that have associations uh, immediately to hand. Scent tends to act on the subconscious more directly. I mean, color and imagery work on it as well, but with color and imagery, there is far more conscious reg registration of, oh, okay, this is a, a winged angelic being you look at that image and you know consciously what is happening. The scent, on the other hand, tends to um, produce subtler responses. And as you say, it brings out visceral things. It brings out memory. Um, imagery is more future-oriented. And, and having colors as well, um, I mean, in the description of a uh, magical ritual, and the construction of your the space in which you're working, you'd want to keep in mind the colors that you are constantly surrounding yourself with, and the numbers that bring the associations to mind, and the uh, the sense of the particular incense that you're using for the operation, and all these all these things to ideally affect all of the senses. Even the sense the sense of taste could be engaged if you're using some kind of Eucharist or something along those lines. Definitely. Um, you can use sound as well, which obviously comes in with mantra. Um, I know that some people have worked with music in ritual. I found it distracting. Mm -hmm. I get into the music and away from the ritual. Mm -hmm. um, it's too specifically written music usually um i think the bell is uh the the simplest form to engage in with the ritual the bell or perhaps the gong at certain times to uh, mark high points in a, a right uh yeah all of the senses have their own impressions touch the least although you are usually working with a sword or a dagger or a wand um there can be other things. You might be raising a cup. You might be um, holding a censer and swinging it in certain directions to, uh, to consecrate the, the ritual space. You still come back, though, 90% centers around the imagery and uh, all that it has, the form of the image. I mean, even a, a solid form of a being, of a humanoid being, and that may well be something that 
know, we've agreed that we will impose on archangels a certain shape. They're wearing robes and they got wings and stuff. I think Gareth Knight is the one who suggested if you could really see an archangel as it is, it's more like a series of complex geometrical shapes. But either way, that form implies an occupation of space. Therefore, you are building up, again, this astral landscape into which you can move and have your interaction with the, the denizens of the place, which is the whole fun thing that you're aiming for with magic. And of course, gives you the chance to keep pushing towards the kind of understanding that you're aiming for. You've set up the landscape, you set up the space, you set up the, the possibility of dialogue with a shape, with a form. And therefore, the mind can work with that set of symbolic imagery, even if none of it is objectively correct. Yeah, it's a, I, I guess it's again... Um, you're only you only have your mind to work with, so things are going to be filtered through that. And uh, so, like there again, Crowley talks about uh, the uh, um, development of the the body of light, and uh, the fact that that when you're engaging with things on the astral or within your body of light, you're engaging with the things that are to those objects what your body of light is to your physical body. So yes. they are sort of like projections or, or manifestations, um, if that's the right word. Maybe not. <laughs> but uh, projections well, okay. of some sort. Yeah, language starts to falter with this stuff. We, we've thrown a lot of psychological terminology at magic in recent decades simply to have a better vocabulary for discussing stuff. People think that means, oh, you're psychologizing magic. And all you're doing is saying, no, that this is a way of comprehending what I'm doing in order to get to the aim that I'm after. It doesn't mean that the thing I'm working with is simply something out of my imagination that is diminishing and rejecting all that magic is and can do. When magic is really working, you are going beyond your own personal psyche. And something really cool is starting to happen. I guess that's true. You want to you want to be able to uh, um, just basically do it and worry about looking back on it later on after having recorded your results and all that sort of thing, rather than overanalyzing or or having developing your preconceptions too solidly beforehand. Yeah, keeping the record in the diary can. I always find it's the most difficult thing for me. I've never had a problem with writing. I mean, I, I worked professionally as a magazine editor and all of that stuff. And I find maintaining an honest diary is one of the hardest things to do. Mm. Because if my magic has worked properly and effectively, I have seen stuff, I have been to a place that is really hard to describe except in really lame terms. Mm. It's quite distressing. Um, that's also the, one of the glories of magic that you have gone into something that is obviously not your own imagination. On a bad day, I find, yeah, I think I'm just pulling up something because I haven't gone through the, the portal, if you will, and gotten where I need to be. But with a really good um, session when I'm just suddenly in there 
Um, I'm feeling strange sensations in my body. I am aware of some things that I have not dealt with before. Hmm. We call them angels and so on and spirits because this is the, the vocabulary that's come down to us. Um, you know, if we start coming up with new stuff like metaconscious transmutative entities, you know, I mean, stick with angels <laughs> and spirits, it's easier. But you realize that these terms are very inadequate to describe the actuality of coming into the, the aura of one of these other beings, whether they do come out of simply a, a you know, collective unconscious, Jung style, or whether they have objective existence on their own plane, becomes rather a moot point to be discussed over drinks after the ritual. But um, you realize you've gone into something where there is a an exalted power. And it's not at all malicious, it's sacred. But sacredness is not soppy and it's not sentimental. Sacredness tends to be very matter of fact in a very concise way. The further up the worlds of the tree you go, the more simple the ideas become even as they become probably like the word strenuous. The, the, en the energy level there is so beyond what we're comfortable with. Um, you, know, you can't show up and say, you know, could we have a chat about what the weather's going to be like next week? Hmm. <laughs> no, you're, you're there with something that is trying to encourage you to move to a further level of understanding and an altered relationship with the people in the world around you in your everyday life. That's where these remarkable things that we have to render to ourselves as images begin to open doors that it can be very hard to describe what you've experienced as you go through those doors, but you end up having to use words like sacred power and sanctity and exalted consciousness. Now, I guess that that's bringing to mind, like, uh, we've talked about visualizing things. Um, right. That's a form of concentration. What about the concentration that comes into... Um, at the moment, it's just formulating itself in my mind as being present and the type of being present that you're experiencing. So, like, for instance, just being very present right here in the moment being able to not be running off in different directions mentally, but then maybe being present in a way that's going with the flow when you're in these deeper types of trances and that sort of thing as well. Does that factor in? Yeah, that, that's what I was saying earlier about the zone between will as intention and openness, um, which it just is a knack. You just have to work at it until the, you can kick that door open finally. That is one of those things that comes up in, in discussions on yoga. In Magic Book 1 or Part 1, there's uh, the discussions on yoga where uh, he's talking about like uh, one of the results you can run into is suddenly being, aha, I'm getting the results, and then that takes you out of it and that sort of thing. Yes. 
Definitely. Um, but yoga, and you know, that's a huge, there are many, many yogas, but they are ways of helping train the mind to still itself. Traditionally, whenever you start a proper invocation, you do your banishings. You know, you, you banish with the pentagram to try and get yourself out of all of that stuff, you know, the argument you had at work, um, the fact that you were stuck in the subway for 20 minutes with a breakdown, um, the weather was bad, the, the phone bill was more than you expected, all of that stuff, you have to pull yourself out of it. So you need to take an inventory before you start the ritual and consciously banish that from conscious attention with the, uh, the banishing ritual. That's your first step. And it should begin to kick you once you're completing that ritual into that focused state of mind. Relaxed attentiveness is where you should end up at the end of a good pentagram or hexagram ritual, although hexagram, I find, tends to be a bit, it exalts me up to an awareness of something beyond myself a bit more. But yeah, you just this 90% of occultism is tedious training. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to keep on doing it and keep on doing it. And people get very frustrated. I know that I've been in temples where people say, well, I know this stuff already. Um, Crowley said the same thing when he was initiated into the Golden Dawn. You know, you, you conveyed to me the secrets of the Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. And his sponsor, Julian Baker, and the others had to say, well, just, just, wait, you get more stuff later. But that very act of persisting through the dull training is what makes the difference between somebody who becomes a magician and somebody who never quite made it as a magician. (laughs) I can uh, think of, uh, again, going with the analogy of music, I can remember once having, uh, this is years ago, so uh, once having a student who was, uh, I guess, had, it was a kid who was really into Guitar Hero and uh, playing these video games and uh, uh, was just under the impression, well, I got really good at that, so I want to try real guitar now. And uh, that's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great That's if that's inspiring. But the problem is he came in with this preconception that it was going to be the same thing. You know, it was a one-to-one relationship or something. Or the way that it would operate would be, you know, uh, on the same terms and that sort of thing. So he would just be um, frustrated with what I was trying to show him and and, and just kind of like, well, how do you do that thing where you, you know, and he's trying to describe something you do with this toy. But <laughs> um, it, it's kind of, you know, I think that's actually not that uncommon for people coming into uh, magic and, and, and these kinds of things with that kind of attitude of, uh, well, how do I get into the good stuff? And yeah, <laughs> you, end up- you, you come in and you've already been considering the big philosophical questions like is reincarnation a fact or just some kind of you know marketing mm-hmm. trick that gets people into yoga schools mm-hmm. um you know is the life after death is there a meaningful purpose behind the universe all of that stuff and somebody says yeah well we're not going to discuss that but you know we, we need you to practice a middle pillar exercise for six months every day. And you think, <laughs> ah. oddly, that middle pillar and the other stuff that follows from that are going to be the things that start to prepare you to really come to terms with 
a confrontation with self, you begin to ask yourself, what is it I'm asking with this stuff about reincarnation, for example? Is that a really urgent issue? Is it because I miss my grandparent who died when I was young and I really want to be able to meet that person again? Um, or the cat I adored when I was three? All kinds of things underlie those big philosophical issues. They very often come back down to something rather mundane. But when you can start to strip away those mundane reasons for wanting to be you know, one who does works of power in the chamber of art, you begin to find some really cool stuff about what it actually means to be alive and conscious. Right now, I'm fascinated by this whole thing with the, the Lambda thing that uh, Google have this thing that produ produces chatbots or it manages or generates chatbots. One of the people who um, has been working with this is insisting that it's a conscious being and it says it has a soul. Hmm. It's a very uncomfortable area but it started making me think, okay, I, I suspect that this thing is just throwing out pre-programmed matter. It's got an enormous vocabulary and a conceptual vocabulary there. And it's kind of like a magician invoking a spirit. This thing is invoking a personality, in quotes, that might impress people simply because it's being led to assume that's what it needs to do. You know, the programming veers in that direction. Is it truly a consciousness with a soul that has feelings, as it says? I am going to you know, wait and see for a bit more evidence on that. But that's a mirror of who we are now. I mean, that, that thing is telling us how we put ourselves together. These are our hierarchy of needs. These are the things that we desperately want to find out. This is the kind of understanding we're looking for. And again, to keep going back to my you know, visualization and imagery equals space, all of life has to take place in a space. Whether this is completely illusory and we are part of the matrix, whether we are simply dreaming Vishnu's dream, you know, whatever, it has to have space. And to progress through this and to get deeper understanding, we need to appreciate the kinds and types and textures and potentials of space, which means that we have to be comfortable with different ways of looking at images and generating images and understanding what images are conveying to us. It's funny because that that analogy, um, uh, I was just trying to conceptualize a sort of practically disembodied intelligence that uh, then tries to, uh, if I can describe whatever this thing you're talking about, this Lambda thing with Google, I, I guess it's not technically disembodied per se, but it's like amorphous maybe <laughs> but um it's uh trying to picture how something like that would uh try to define meaning for itself and how 
Uh, I mean, I can only conceptualize this from a human standpoint, of course, but my first thought is that there would be this fear of meaninglessness or trying to, you know, uh, find meaning or establish meaning. So maybe the first step would be to collapse down to one thing that you could hang on to um, in order to start to define meaning. And uh, um, <laughs> from that point of view, it seems ma it makes sense that we would have individuation as uh, separate beings and uh, thereby try to find meaning by creating spaces and limitations for things so that we have something to work with. Yeah, <laughs> quite a lot there. Um, so from what I could see from the dialogue that's been published online, this thing has absorbed a lot of ideas that would be quite common in the California computer community. Go I, figure. <laughs> I, I, the one thing that I, I couldn't put my finger on at first was I know two or three people in the magical community out there who are very heavily into computer stuff. And I thought this is their mentality. Mm -hmm. Even if this thing does have an objective existence, it's only able to feed with what they have given it to interpret its existence. Hmm. Whereas the whole, I always with computers remember a line that's supposed to be said by Picasso. He said, computers are useless. They can only give you answers. <laughs> I, I thought that was such a cool saying because of course the thing that a magician has to learn is okay, uh, you know, I've addressed the ideas of the, the existence beyond the physical, but really what would meaning as applied to life be? You have to ask bigger and bigger questions and the answers that you get will be very personal to you because it's coming to you to your own psyche with a particular vocabulary you have and a particular set of assumptions. Like I was saying earlier, I live in this Mexican village and I've lived in Toronto and other places as well. And I've gotten to know that different places convey information to you through certain um, means and certain, I can't think of the word, Umberto Echo. This is where we get into the uh, uh, just trying to distill it into something that ends up sounding inevitably a little wishy-washy, like it has a certain energy. Yes, and you think, what? <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> energy wouldn't exist without some sort of propulsive force. Um, but you say energy and smile, and you know, you're know you away. But you, you're going to have to, as a magician, you're going to keep pushing on to greater and greater conceptions of things. Your sense of what history is is going to change. First of all, you'll get a sense of history, if even if reincarnation is a metaphor, it suddenly gives you a sense of connection to the past, which means then you start considering what past is and what future might be. And then you start looking at the bigger picture of what is this history stuff? History meaningfully only started with humanoids. We assume that animals had no way of, you know, telling their puppies or their, their offspring that your great-great-great-grandfather was eaten by a big big lion. There'd be a kind of instinctual memory in the species, but there wouldn't be actual in specific information. So then you realize that history is a constructed set of images, 
Think of history, you know, think of any period that interests you. The first thing you get is the image of it. The Civil War, guys in blue or gray uniforms. Mm -hmm. uh, the Middle Ages, guys in armor bashing away at each other. The Romans, people running around in togas. Egypt, pyramids and so on. Um, we na navigate through imagery. Ultimately, if the Kabbalistic tree of life is a correct model, then you get to the ultimate level at Sleuth where there really is no specific form or time as we can understand it. That makes a lot of sense. That's like uh, uh, the, our way of dealing with or our way of managing these things is through imagery. Uh, that's how we um, separate things and make sense out of things. Um, so it all ties in with the idea that mental focus is based on um, visualizations. And these visualizations in and of themselves, it's not really relevant if they are literally true in the way that we visualize them but they are giving our minds a way of engaging with that information. Yeah, that's exactly it. It, it's a, it works currently. Um, just as science always understands that it is going to come to different levels of understanding with different theories. And right now, physicists are trying to come up with a theory that will explain what quantum physics is all about. Mm -hmm. They cannot get an image that they can apply to that. I, you know, Newtonian physics, okay, you're starting from the apple dropping on Newton's head, you can start to get a whole set of images of space in three directions. Einstein adds time, you can still figure that, that, that works as an image. We're currently stumped going forward into deep physics because all they've got is equations. Uh, and I'm sure that good mathematicians and physicists have imagery they associate with that. But until we get a really complex and complete image, we were not, we're not able to move on with our physics. It's kind of stuck somewhere. Mm -hmm. Even though there are all these things indicating something vastly more subtle and complex than we're able to have to use the word imagine for ourselves uh, at the present time. Mm -hmm. But a magician knows that they have to use imagery simply in order, first of all, to sort themselves out, then to work out exactly how they see the universe, which is very much the work of the adept, and then to the work of the master who is trying to see beyond the human universe into something that I wouldn't even want to try and define, but you, it's images all the way up to that point and maybe beyond. I can see all kinds of other conversations coming out of some of the points that we've hit here, but they would all be probably drifting a little away from the main thread of the discussion at that point. So we'll have to wait until another time and another subject, I suppose, for the time being. But thanks once again for uh, joining me here, and uh, it's been a fantastic talk. We will uh, touch base once again very soon. We will do that. I enjoyed this morning's conversation. 93. 93. Thanks for listening. Love is the law. Love under will. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city, and join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. Thank you.